Good morning. It's a great joy for me to be able to be with you here this morning. My wife uh, went to St. Paul's Presbyterian Church for many years while Mike was pastoring there, and then I uh, was also privileged to sit under his preaching for a season while I was in seminary. So it's, it's very much my privilege to come and, and to be with you all here uh, at this next stage of the Lord's calling to him. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would indeed enlighten our paths, that you would illumine our minds to understand your word, that you would enliven our hearts to respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to be talking about wages. And simply put, wages are that which is given to a person in return for their actions. And most commonly, this refers to monetary payment uh, given to someone in return for their work. And by and large, in this sense, most people want their wages. 
When you get up in the morning and leave the house, sit in traffic, arrive at your workplace, and devote your time and energy toward meeting the demands of your job, and then get back in the car and go home and then do it all over again, when payday comes, you want your wages. And both Jesus and Paul affirm this desire in the New Testament. Both say a worker deserves his wages. However, there are other kinds of wages besides money paid for work, and they're not all positive. We could say that the wages of laziness is poverty. Proverbs 10.4 says exactly this. It says, lazy hands make a man poor. We might could say that the wages of crime is punishment. When a person breaks the law, they are either fined or imprisoned. This is what happens to them in return for their actions. And in these cases, most people probably would not want their wages. Well, there's a particular type of wage that all people equally deserve, and yet it is one that none of us want. In Romans 6.23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. That is what we as humanity deserve in return for our sin and our rebellion against the holy God is nothing short of death. And Paul locates the beginning of these death wages, if we could call them that, in Adam's fall. In Romans 5.12, he says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Well, Adam's fall, what he's talking about here, is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. God had said to Adam, on the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And then Adam did the unthinkable. He ate from the tree. He sinned against God. However, after sinning, Adam did not die immediately, as we may have expected, at least not physically. He continued to have physical life after sinning, and because of this, we can deduce that the death that he suffered on that day, as God says, was a spiritual death. Only later did he experience physical death. And as Paul says, these wages of spiritual and physical death spread to all people to all of Adam's descendants, to you and to me. Well, Genesis 4, the passage that we're looking at this morning, is the first post-fall story. So in many ways, this is the paradigmatic account of humanity experiencing these wages of sin. And in this account, we see several aspects of sin's wages and the ways that they manifest themselves in the lives of people. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that the punishments of sin in this world, what we might call the manifestations of spiritual death, involve blindness of mind, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and evils upon our relationships. And all of these things we see present here in this text, and to varying degrees, all of us experience these things in our lives. So as descendants of Adam here this morning, this text has great relevance for us. And so this morning we're going to look at four aspects of the wages of sin as we see them here in Genesis 4, and then how they relate to us today. First, the wages of sin involve an overvaluing 
of human ability. An overvaluing of human ability. And we see this when we contrast the birth accounts of Cain and Abel with their subsequent worship of God. What we see when we look at the birth accounts is that from a superficial human perspective, Cain was greatly favored over Abel. And this is reflected both in the description of their births as well as in the meanings of their two names. Listen again to the description of the two boys' births here, and I'm going to emphasize what the text is emphasizing as we read this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. You see, Eve responds to Cain's birth by bursting out in joyful exclamation. But notice that she doesn't even comment when Abel is born. We're left for the narrator to inform us that, oh, by the way, Abel was born next, making him not much more than an afterthought. And in her exclamation here over Cain's birth, Eve emphasizes human ability and she minimizes divine providence. It's very subtle, but it's there. She makes herself the primary agent of activity here. If you look at this, she says, I have gotten or literally bought or acquired a man. She emphasizes herself as the subject here, whereas elsewhere in Scripture, God is emphasized as the one who gives children. For example, in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah, who had been barren and finally had a son, praised God and said, God has granted me a son. And then on the tail end of this statement, Eve makes God a little more than an obligatory appendage. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But even that translation is pretty generous toward Eve. What she literally says is, I have gotten a man with the Lord. So she very much emphasizes herself here in Cain's birth. And you'll also notice that she calls little baby Cain here a man. And indeed, she uses the word for a full-grown man here, not a baby. You see, whereas babies are helpless and needy, men, especially in the ancient world, were understood as self-sufficient, as powerful, as providers, especially for their own families. And this is why having sons in the ancient world was such a big deal. When you got old and weren't able to work, or if your husband were to die, your son was the one that would take care of you. And so not having a son was a serious problem. You would become destitute, usually. That's the problem that Naomi faced in the book of Ruth. And so in the birth of Cain here, human ability, power, and strength is greatly emphasized, whereas Abel's birth is barely acknowledged, almost like a little footnote. And this fits the meanings of their two names. Cain means spear, a weapon of power and might. You know what Abel means? Vapor. Mist. Abel's name is actually the word that begins the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. Or as the NIV renders it, meaningless. And so from a human perspective, Cain is the man, pun intended, while Abel is meaningless. Yet when we look at their worship, 
we see that God sees things very differently. In verses 3 and 4, Cain and Abel each bring an offering to God. And whereas Cain simply brought an offering, nondescript, the text says that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. This was the best of the best. And this contrast implies that Cain did not bring his best to God. And it's significant that in verse 4, the text says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. You see, God accepted Abel the person first, and that is what led God to accept Abel's offering. Abel's best of the best offering reflected his posture of faith in God, which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. And then verse 5 shows the inverse, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Again, Cain, the person, is emphasized first. Despite being the front runner from the human perspective, Cain's lack of faith in God made him and his worship unacceptable to God. You see, whereas we tend to overvalue human ability, God values faith. And how true this is of us even today. I'm not going to waste your time trying to convince you that our world highly values and esteems human ability and competence. You already know this. People that have competence and confidence and natural abilities, they tend to be the types of people that we like to be around, that we want to be friends with. It's the type of person that we want to be. We want to be skilled. We want to be likable. We want to be respected and accepted. We want to be successful according to the standards of this world. And while there's nothing uh, necessarily wrong with wanting to be competent or successful, our problem is our propensity to overvalue this aspect of life. We tend to try and find our identity, our self-worth, and our ability to perform well and to receive the esteem of others. But the problem here is that this is a double-edged sword. You see, if our identity, if we try to find it in our own human ability, and we do perform well, we become prideful. We begin to trust in ourselves and in our ability to succeed. And scripture repeatedly says that God opposes the proud. However, if we seek to find our identity and our human ability and we do not perform well, well, we fall into despair. We're left imagining what life would be like if we were successful. We begin to covet the lives of other people and live our lives through others who seem successful the way that we define it. But what this text teaches us here is that God doesn't value us based on those things. If he did, it would have been Cain's offering that he accepted and not Abel's. Whereas we tend to value human ability, God values faith that is demonstrated in faithful actions, no matter how insignificant or even meaningless the person might seem according to the human standards of this world. So if you're here this morning and you overvalue human ability, know that this is a wage of sin 
in your life. And all of us struggle with this to certain degrees in different areas of life. The key is to identify where we are prone to do this, to acknowledge that this is sin working itself in our hearts. And rather than being preoccupied with being or seeming competent, we need to learn to value in ourselves and in others what God values, faith and faithfulness. And we should seek ways to cultivate faith in our heart rather than preoccupying ourselves with seeming competent in the eyes of others. And if you're here this morning and you struggle with feeling insignificant, maybe you even struggle with feeling meaningless, like Abel, take heart from what God values here in this passage. You see, from the human perspective, Abel did not have much to offer. He would not have drawn great crowds or have been the center of attention. Yet his humble faithfulness was highly prized by God. He was successful in the area of life that truly matters. And this is the area that the eyes of the world are blind to see. And as the writer of Hebrews says again, Abel's faithfulness continues to speak even today, even this morning in this very room. This is the type of person that God values. So be encouraged by that this morning as you seek to press on in your faith. Well, second, the wages of sin involve an underestimation of sin's power. An underestimation of sin's power. After God does not accept Cain's worship, verse 5 says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. Rather than repenting, Cain just gets upset and angry. Well, God then warns him by personifying sin, saying at the end of verse 7 that it is crouching at the door, that it desires him. And the idea here is that sin is not passive or inactive. Sin is out to get us. Part of the wages of sin are that sin wages war against us. It's like a lion crouching before it pounces. But even though God patiently warns Cain here about sin's power, Cain doesn't even respond to God. He doesn't even honor him with an answer in the passage. Instead, in verses 8 and 9, immediately after God warns him about this, Cain takes Abel out to a field, murders him, then lies about it to God and sprinkles a little sarcasm there at the end. Cain doesn't take to heart at all God's warning about the crouching desire of sin. Instead, he ignores God and underestimating the power of his sin to control and to ruin his life, he destroys God's image. Unfortunately, one of the wages of sin in our lives is that we underestimate the devastating power that it can have over us. When we are confronted with our sin, What's our natural tendency? It's to minimize it. Or like Cain, simply to ignore it and to ignore God's warnings about it. Like an ostrich, we just stick our head into a hole full of busy schedules and convenient distractions that disallow us from reflecting upon the deep gravity of our sin issues. But then, like an ostrich with its head in a hole, this leaves the entirety of our person exposed 
and vulnerable to that crouching lion that is at our door. Instead of hiding from or ignoring our sin, what we are prone to do, the very thing that we are supposed to do is that which feels quite unnatural at times. Instead of turning away from God, we are actually to turn toward him, to turn toward the very judge of sin himself. There are many things in life that are a bit counterintuitive, where the right thing to do is not what you would expect you should do. For almost three years, my wife and I lived up in the Chicago area. And although in the winter here in Florida, we enjoy some nice, beautiful 80-degree days, up in Chicago, the winters are, you could say, a tad nippier. And one of the things that you have to learn when you live in colder climates is how to drive in icy weather. And there's even a phenomenon that's very uh, ominous-sounding called black ice. That is, ice that is so transparent on the road that you can't even see it. Well, if you hit a a patch of black ice, your car often will begin to slide. You lose control. And your natural inclination when you feel that loss of control and your car is sliding is that you want to hit the brakes and turn the other direction. But ironically, that's the very opposite of what you want to do. When your car begins to slide on ice, what you actually want to do is to let go of the gas and turn toward the direction that you're sliding. To do so feels very counterintuitive, but that's actually the best way to regain control of your car. And the situation is similar with sin and God. Although it feels counterintuitive for us often when we are confronted with our sin to turn toward the one who judges sin, that is the very direction that we are supposed to turn. And the reason for this is that sin is too powerful for us to handle on our own. Now, God does tell Cain that he must rule over his sin. But he was not to do this by his own strength. In John 8:34, Jesus says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, which means that Cain could not have done it on his own. In verse 7, God says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, we've already seen that Abel was accepted, Because he did do well, and what doing well means here is trusting God. And this is what Cain should have done. He should have heeded God's warning, confessed his sin, repented of it, and then turned toward God in faith. But instead, he underestimated the crouching sin, and he fell victim to it. The question for you here this morning is, what are the sins that are crouching at your door What are the nagging sins in your life? And perhaps even more importantly, how are you responding to them? When faced with your sin, do you heed God's word? Do you turn to him in confession and repentance like we just did earlier? Or are you like Cain? Do you ignore your sin? Do you ignore God's warnings about the wages of your sin? Do you underestimate the sin in your life? If you are minimizing or ignoring the sins that you struggle with, that is a sign that the wages of sin are maximizing themselves in your heart. And God's words to Cain here are equally applicable to you. If you do well, that is, if you turn to God, 
in repentance and faith, will you not be accepted? And the answer is a resounding yes. The Lord invites you this morning not to ignore or to become further ensconced in your sin by underestimating its power, but rather to turn to him, the only one who is powerful enough to help you overcome those sins that nag you, and the only one who provides forgiveness and acceptance for those who are penitent. Well, third, the wages of sin involve temporal punishments. And what I mean by temporal punishments is punishments experienced in this life. Despite Cain's sarcastic attempt here to hide his sin, in verse 10, God calls him out on it. And there's a theme throughout verses 10 through 12 of the ground. It appears in every verse. In verse 10, God says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And then in verse 11, God curses Cain and decrees punishments against him. And this curse here is significant especially when we compare it to the curse of chapter 3. You see, when Adam sinned, God cursed the ground in 3.17. He declared that it would produce thorns and thistles, that it would be difficult to work. Well, when Cain sinned, rather than cursing the ground, God curses Cain himself in verse 11, saying, you are cursed from the ground. And then in verse 12, God continues to say, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Well, all of this is very significant in context, that the ground will not yield itself to Cain, because Cain was introduced to us in verse 2 as a worker of the ground. God curses Cain in such a way that his fundamental human activity, that which characterizes him, is put into frustration and futility. Rather than allowing Cain to work the ground and to provide for himself a comfortable living, God banishes him to be a wanderer, one who does not enjoy the produce of the ground. Cain is punished with temporal punishments here. His earthly activities are frustrated at the very core of his being. Oftentimes, it doesn't seem to me that we really believe that God would punish us with temporal punishments for our sin. Now, it is quite true, we have to say, that not all of our hardship or suffering in this life is punishment for particular sins that we have committed. Job's friends in the book of Job mistakenly concluded that his suffering must have been due to some specific sin that he had committed. But we know from that story that uh, they were very wrong. God chastised them for drawing that conclusion. However, while not all of our hardship is punishment from God, that does not mean that none of our hardship is punishment from God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the church against eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in a sinful way, and then in verse 30, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That is, their sin has brought temporal punishments. And this is exactly what happened to Cain here in this passage. So in our lives, when we are experiencing hardship or suffering, we don't need to assume 
that God is punishing or chastising us. But we certainly should ask ourselves a question. Do I have unrepentant sin in my life that may be the cause for God to inflict temporal punishment upon me? You see, for the Christian, God inflicts such punishment as fatherly discipline. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Again, he says, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. It is loving for God to inflict these temporal punishments upon us so that we are alerted to the sin in our life and can then turn from it. You see, God wants us to grow in holiness and in faithfulness, not allow us to persist in our sinful foolishness that we are so prone to do. And one of the ways that God gets our attention is by giving us difficulty, giving us hardship and frustration. It should move us to repentance, to humility. And for the non-Christian, though, like Cain, one of the punishments that God inflicts is ultimate dissatisfaction at the very core of your being. Cain, the worker of the ground, was cursed from the ground. He was hit at the very core of his identity. And similarly, if you are here this morning, and if you are outside of fellowship with God in Christ, you should not expect to find satisfaction in your work or in life in general. Frustration should not be a surprise. The wages of sin involve temporal punishments that affect the very core of your identity. You are not living the way that God designed you to be living as a worshiper of him. And therefore, you will find no rest in this life outside of his provision of salvation in Jesus. But like Cain, you will live as a restless wanderer. But how should we respond to all of this? Well, for the Christian and the non-Christian alike, the answer is the same. We must seek God's mercy. And this is our fourth and final point here. The wages of sin require an abundance of divine mercy. In verses 13 and 14, Cain responds to God's punishment, again, not with repentance, but with selfish complaining. In these two verses, Cain uses first-person pronouns, I, me, or my, no less than seven times. He is wholly preoccupied with himself and how difficult things are going to be for him now and doesn't say anything about how he has wronged his brother or God. However, despite the selfish and unrepentant response, God still shows him a degree of mercy. If you look at verse 15, God puts a mark on Cain to protect him from blood vengeance. What Cain did deserved capital punishment, as the rest of the Old Testament makes clear. But God mercifully does not give Cain all that he deserves. God still punishes him. Cain leaves God's presence to go dwell in the land of Nod, which interestingly means wandering, that activity that God had sentenced him to do in verse 12. But even in the midst of this temporal punishment, God shows a measure of mercy. Were Cain to have received the full measure 
of sin's wages. He would have been attacked and killed for blood vengeance. But as it stands, this story ends with the note of God's mercy ringing in our ears. And this is good news for us here this morning, isn't it? Even though we experience temporal punishments in this world, because of God's great and abiding mercy, we do not receive the full brunt of what our sins deserve. You see, like Cain, all of us here are murderers. Everyone has killed another person by hating them in their heart, as Jesus elaborates that command. So for us, even to enjoy any measure of life in this world, the wages of our sin require an abundance of divine mercy. And our God's mercy is therefore displayed with every breath that we take. Even Cain, who was wholly unrepentant and unfaithful, even he enjoyed this. And if God gives temporal life, even to the unrepentant, how much more is his mercy shown to the repentant? To those who do not trust in their own human ability, who do not underestimate their sin and its power to control them, but rather respond to God's temporal punishments in repentance and faith, God shows the ultimate mercy. Not simply temporal life, not simply extension of our earthly lives, but eternal life. I've been using Romans 6.23 as a rubric to explore what's happening here in Genesis 4, the wages of sin, is death. What I have not done up to this point is to quote the rest of that verse. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of our sin require an abundance of divine mercy, and God has shown this mercy by punishing his Son in our stead and giving us eternal life in his name. What he requires of all of us is what Cain should have done and what Abel, in fact, did. Trust in him. For those who would repent, who would believe in Jesus Christ, God's mercy is poured out in abundance. And then we no longer have to fear the death wages that our sins deserve. For the believer, death has lost its sting. Because as he did for Abel, God will commend as righteous those who come to him in faith. And may we do so as his church here today. Let's pray. Our Father, your word teaches us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a marvelous truth this is. And we give you all thanks and praise and glory and honor for it, Lord. We pray that you would enable us to live faithful lives, not by our own power, but by the great power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, trusting in your word and resting in your mercy, and that you would be pleased to extend your mercy through us, Lord, for your own great glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.